1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I
2: feel like who arted? We'll who arted, Mr. Wood? <laughs> arted me? Yes. Either way, it works. I, I know. That's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Lucy Fiorito. Uh, I, I love this, a fellow Chicago native, but. We had to figure out a six hour time change because she's doing research, studying art history in Scotland. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I love that we've got this giant time gap for, for somebody who's from like 20 minutes from my home. Um, but thank you so much for finding the time to join me.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
2: I am really excited because you know you are specializing in art history doing all sorts of research and you brought to me an artist that I'd heard of, I'd seen, but I honestly hadn't taken much time to do a deep dive into. Today we're talking about Bert Morisot. Did I get that about right?
1: I've I've heard it pronounced multiple ways. Some people say Bert I'm not really
2: sure. I kind of say, I say Bert, you know? Yeah. I, I always want to say Berth, but like I've, I actually took time to do like the YouTube video pronunciation stuff and like, (laughs) it it always seems to be Bert. um, But I can never get a French name right. And I, it feels disrespectful for me to try to imitate the actual pronunciation because I'm never going to get it. But um, more so is um, just an amazing artist associated with the Impressionist movement. But she kind of stood out from that. Uh, aside from the fact that she was the only woman in the first uh, Impressionist exhibition, her style was just a little bit different. Her lens was a little bit different. Like, I I kind of always lumped her in with, like, Cassatt, you know, the other female painter who was well-known from, from that era. You know, I think largely because it's just, it's a woman's perspective and the tone feels mm-hmm. very different. But I guess we should probably get started at the beginning. Bert Morisseau was born January 14th, 1841. Um. So I always, for me, understanding historical context, I always think of like, Daguerre came up with his photographic method in 1839. And so I think of that as just like a timestamp to sort of understand and put like the modern art movements in context and think about how that stuff was shaped, how the world around them and technology was shaping their their lens and their ideas. Uh, one thing I I didn't know until I started doing research, I guess her grandfather was Fragonard, the Rococo painter best known for the swing. So I, I it kind of runs in her family the artistic gene if there is such a thing Um, because not only like was her grandfather um, Fragonard she had a sister help me out with the pronunciation was it I want to say like Edna but it's not it's Edma Edma
1: interestingly enough yeah
2: (laughs) yeah Edma (laughs) was also a really talented painter um, both of them, from an early age, showed tremendous talent, and that was kind of unusual for not to be talented was unusual for women of the day, but to have that talent nurtured and to have it encouraged and to be given access to training, the apprenticeships, and learning from other artists, that was unusual for the day. Um, you had you had in your notes a beautiful quote. I think um, from one of her one of her tutors, who's told the parents, "Your daughters have such inclinations that my teaching will not give them merely the talent of pleasing. They will become painters." Do you know what this means in your environment? This will be a revolution, if not a catastrophe. There's a lot to yeah. unpack there. So
1: that just blew me away.
2: Yeah. Um, do you want to do such out- a young age? Yeah. So, like, um,
1: <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no,
2: I, I was going to try to toss it over to you to unpack that. Like, so I, there's a lot that jumps out to me about that quote, but you know, you put that in the show notes. What jumped out to you about that?
1: Yeah. So this was one of their first tutors, actually. And Morisot and Edma actually started their art lessons because they wanted to paint a picture for their dad for his birthday. And um, little did their mother know what Pandora's box this would open <laughs> for, especially for Bert's, uh profession. And I think that both of them had this kind of ambition and this way of capturing kind of the human spirit that was really unique among all sorts of art, but, you know, the art at the time. And um, just the the last part of that quote, it will be a revolution or a catastrophe. It's a little bit ominous, I think, you know, for the, for the career that they had because clearly it was a revolution and You know, her style of painting was different than some of the other Impressionists. But in the case of her sister, uh, she did not continue art after she got married. And that's what The Cradle is kind of all about. That painting that we're looking at today, that is a picture of her sister.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think of, you know, he's basically saying, you know, they're not just making something that looks nice and is decorative. They're true artists. And to have women as quote unquote true artists in this society was just kind of unheard of again, foreshadowing that there would be some backlash to that. And as you've alluded to both Bertha and, um, and Edma, were successful painters early on. Before they got married, both of them exhibited in the Paris Salon, which again is kind of unusual for someone associated with the impressionist movement. Usually when I've talked about impressionists, it was talking about how they were all rejected by the Salon. They were, you know, their style just didn't fit in, but um Berthe she got like she got that traditional painting experience. She was learning from a number of accomplished artists um, along the way as she's getting that training. She gets a bit of a reputation. And I think it was like the mid-1860s she started exhibiting at the Paris Salon up until... 1874, when we had that famous first exhibition of the Impressionists. Um, They weren't calling it that at the time, obviously, because the name Impressionism, it would come from a critic just ripping apart the show, um, saying, you know, these aren't real paintings, these aren't finished works, they're merely impressions and stuff like that. But at that time, she cast herself in with that circle of Monet and Renoir and she basically swore off the Paris Salons. If I, if I read correctly, she just said like, she's not going to be a part of that group and that society anymore. She was joining the Society Anonyme de painters sculptors and what was it printmakers or something like that it was like mm-hmm. it was a really long they needed they paintings were beautiful but their branding was terrible
1: yeah it was monumental for her to get accepted you know regardless of her gender but the fact that you know she didn't go to these schools that kind of trained male artists to you know work on a, a way to get accepted into the salon she had to kind of do it Not on her own, because she had, you know, I think Corot was one of her tutors, so clearly she was in good hands uh, with that sense. But I think the fact she didn't receive that kind of formal training was, you know, it just really shows how successful she was even before, yeah, uh, debuting with the Impressionists.
2: Yeah, she basically worked her way up through the studios, apprenticing and learning from other artists and accomplished artists, no less. I mean, like you said, Corot, but she didn't have the stamp of approval from like Beaux-Arts, you know, she didn't have the... um, I guess, whatever their equivalent of an MFA was. I don't know if they were doing that back then, but she didn't have right. the academy training. She learned it in the studios from other artists. And most people who rose to that level of making it into the Paris salon kind of had both. You know, most yeah. like they they would go to art school, but also simultaneously st- study privately under other artists and stuff like that. But Berta and Edma they both made it into the paris salon and then 1869 edma she gets married which you know both of them eventually got married but edma when she got married she basically did what a lot of women did in that time she gave up her career and her ambitions in that aspect of her life and she focused on the home marriage and, and her children and all of that. Whereas with Berta, she married, she married Manet, but not the one you're thinking of. She married um, Eugene Manet, uh, the younger brother to the famous. What's interesting is he was an artist, but he was, I would say more the amateur artist you know like he had some skill he i i don't want to diminish him in any way but she was the more successful painter she was the more professional um more polished more refined more respected artist in that couple and so berta was really sort of like you said in the ver- that very beginning revolutionary she was she was, you know, turning those gender roles on their head in that marriage.
1: Yeah, and I think what was so interesting about having these two sisters who kind of grew up in the world around art and then seeing, you know, the way their lives kind of diverged from each other, it really does show how their husbands kind of treated their love of art. And a fun fact I learned was that Eugene Manet, uh, Mm -hmm. Bert's husband, was actually a stay-at-home husband. He decided to give up because he, I think, he had a civil job somewhere, and he decided to stay at home once their daughter Julie was born to take care of her, so that Bert could continue with her art career. And I think even in today's standards, that's still kind of not the norm. So back then, I mean, that was huge, and it really did allow Morisot to continue and to rise to the level of acclaim that we see her at now.
2: Yeah. And I think what's interesting is, you know, that last phrase you, you used the level of acclaim we see her in now. While she's certainly respected and appreciated today and her contributions are known, I think in some ways her relative stature in the impressionist movement has diminished over time because today, artists like Monet are household names. You know, even I know how to pronounce Monet, but more so, I'm still struggling with. I've seen her work. I've I've known her work. I've seen it in in the textbooks, Um and I I, I believe I even had like a. Poster at at my house way back in the day when I was growing up, but she's not as well known today as as you know your Renoirs and your Monets, but she was at that time she was outselling them. Oh yeah, critics actually pointed to the group exhibitions and said Morisseau's the only one in here who can paint, and I find that really interesting because I I feel like. A lot of artists, you know, you think you're Hilma off Clint. were forgotten to history, but now we're looking back and realizing how revolutionary they were. And it's kind of funny with, with Morisot. It was like they knew how revolutionary she was at the time, and now we're in a sense losing that. I think partially because her work, her work feels so sort of calm right like there's this yep. gentleness and this ease to it that makes you sort of forget how how unusual it was for the time and how it upended a lot just from the fact that she was the one painting it and the subjects that she was captured, capturing and all of that. And I guess we're kind of already starting to make the transition to the analysis. So after the break, let's get into one of her specific pieces. We've got The Cradle here. Um, so we'll talk about that in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was
1: from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked, on each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your
2: podcasts. So now we're back. I've got Lucy Ferrito. I almost said Frito. Sorry. <laughs> I see you laughing. I'll at take me. it. You know what? <laughs> I, 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 Lucy Fiorito. Um, but we're talking about Berthe Morriso, just a whole bunch of names I'm struggling with today. But we're the piece we're talking about. At least has an easily Americanized name, the Cradle. So as you look at this piece, uh, the Cradle from 1872, what are you noticing? What's jumping out to you about this?
1: Well, I think, uh, weirdly enough, what first strikes me is the clothing that Edma is depicted in. Uh, she is a new mother. And doing a little bit of research on kind of the fashion back then, it's clear that she's still kind of presenting herself as an affluent young woman. And I think they putting her in these clothes to pose next to a baby was very intentional because I think it shows how Edma was struggling, you know, with leaving behind her past life as an artist as a woman and kind of assuming this new role as a mother. And I think, you know, when critics first saw this, they kind of dismissed it as just a, a heartwarming, tender scene of a mother and her child. But I, it's, it's so much more than that. There's kind of a tension that is under the surface here. I mean, if you look at Edma's face, she's not overjoyed. She's looking a little bit kind of contemplative. Uh, staring down at her baby, which is you know kind of divided through this youth of the veil over the cradle, and it's it's interesting. I think knowing the context behind that, like we were talking about before, it's it's easy to look at a lot of morso's work um, just aesthetically. And you know, you walk past it in a gallery, or you flip a page in a book and you see it, and it's beautiful to look at. But I think that's what makes these conversations so important is that the context behind it adds a sense of kind of unease and I think a lot of people can maybe sympathize with this painting once they know you know the struggles between your life and I think for women like the role of motherhood and kind of trying to balance all of that so it is it is an interesting one
2: yeah I think I think the The tension in there um, that's lurking just beneath the surface, that's just hinted at, I think that's what makes this such a powerful piece. Now, I am not a mother, I am a father, but I see that look on her face in this painting, and it's a look I know, it's a look I connect with, because I love and adore my children, absolutely 100% but also that phase when you have a newborn baby it is exhausting you know you're not sleeping well you're you're so concerned about every little thing every moment of the day it consumes you in in many ways for for the better like i say love my children and am thrilled to death with every aspect of parenthood. But the fact of the matter is it does take something like it's, it's exhausting. And, you know, in this case, you know, she basically gave up her career in service of taking care of, of that child. And, you know, you may feel like that is a worthwhile trade-off but there is a loss there you know and you know she captures that in a way that i think i think is very authentic you know at first it does feel just this calm and stillness i i see there's so much white in there that just makes it feel um and and I think because of like that gauzy white veil, it just it feels very soft and serene and everything like that. But we still see it in the face, like you said. And I think the fact that she's alluding to it in this subtle way and not hammering it over your head is what makes it so powerful, is what makes it so relatable. You know, Definitely. we see the. We see the beauty, but we also see the drawbacks, or the the exhaustion, or however you might want to phrase it. And I think that's earlier. I said I mentally sort of lump um, more so in with Kasat because of the fact that they're giving that perspective of domestic life. Um, you know, we've. Hinted at this and maybe even come right out and said it, but life for a man versus life for a woman was very, very different at that time. You know, in the 19th century, the expectations, the roles that were occupied, what the world looked like on a day to day basis for a man versus a, a woman was just very different. And more so, it is giving us the 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 Morisot is giving us a glimpse into that world.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a common motif in a lot of her works, and a lot of that was not necessarily by choice for her. Uh, Women weren't allowed to walk outside alone if they were um, unaccompanied, which you know really kind of shapes what she was able to paint. So a lot of her scenes are interior. A lot of them deal with women, mothers, children, kind of all stages of life. Uh, but she really did enjoy painting outside. So that is something that is kind of frustrating to, you know, hear because how many amazing paintings would, are we not going to have? Because, you know, she wasn't able to go outside and paint like all the other Impressionists were doing at that time. Um But I think, you know, what she did with those interior scenes is still amazing. She was able to kind of take that setback and turn it into something beautiful.
2: Yeah. And I I think that's interesting because when I was first doing the research for this episode, I remember reading that like Manet had encouraged her to paint in plain air. You know, like we always think of that the impressionist getting outside the studio, painting outside, observing nature, all of that. And when I when I read that she couldn't go outside without a male chaperone, that is just, that is so just like foreign to my way of thinking and and interacting with the world and you know all of the 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 people in my life like I would would not <laughs> they they would not take that suggestion well so like. <laughs> I I it's it's just such a foreign concept to me it just really hammers home like just how different it was and the the there's so much that is about talked about the male gaze in in works and she's giving us the female gaze the female lens that that distinctly female viewpoint that was so different from what her contemporaries were we're seeing and it just it makes it all the more interesting to me to see what she's capturing and what she's picking up on and how she's portraying it and to understand that's why it's so many interiors like that was something that i didn't realize i didn't connect those dots until until you pointed that out um which again gives me a whole new level of insight into into this and other work others in her body of work
1: yeah. Well, researching, that was something I came across that also shocked me. So you're not alone in that. Um, I mean, you're like, just the idea of me not being able to walk outside by myself today is just completely foreign. So the fact that this was a very real struggle for her, you know, is just interesting because it wasn't too long ago and the entirety of history and and women in art. Um, and I, I like what you brought up about the female gaze, because I think that is something that's being discussed a lot more, at least in my kind of circles today. Um, And I think her work compared to maybe that of Manet, someone who she worked with, it's interesting to see how he depicts his female subjects versus how she does and kind of how that is, for me, kind of the perfect example of how the male gaze and the female gaze are a little bit different.
2: Yeah, I I would agree. It's it's to me to to be really reductive about it it feels like it's objectification versus empathy you yeah. know um and i think i think we can all agree we all benefit from a little bit more empathy so i am definitely a huge fan i'm not as fond of the color scheme i got to say there's something as i look at this just On a superficial gut level, I think part of the reason that in a lot of ways I haven't done as deep a dive I'm looking at her work and when I think of the impressionists, the thing that I always loved about the impressionism was that optical color theory and the way that they're putting all those bright colors together. Like I, I like things that are bright and loud and, you know attention grabbing and i love to discover all those de- and and her work is softer it's so much more muted and i think it's i think it's deliberate and understanding more about her motivations as trying to instead of capture what something looked like capture what something feels like that subdued tone the that all makes sense you know this much more neutral palette it it works especially in a piece like the cradle where we see it's not the exciting stuff you know yeah it's very not a negative but yeah it well it's contemplative you know it's not it's not it doesn't feel sad to me but it doesn't feel celebratory it's just it it's meditative it's it's thoughtful it's introspective i see her Mm -hmm as in some ways at a crossroads and looking at and contemplating what all of this means and the the massive changes that are happening in her life in that moment. And it it's serious, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think the color palette makes sense in that context, but it, it just, it never really, never grabbed me until I started I to understand why.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe that's a, a reason why she kind of flew under the radar compared to the other Impressionists.
2: Well, I think that's why she flew on, flies under the radar more today. But I think that's also probably why she was seen as more serious back in, yeah. in the day when people were used to more traditional work that was, you know, the historical paintings and stuff that was a little bit more. I don't want to say serious because you know the impressionists were 100 percent serious about what they were doing but it was a different tone um yeah. and it was a different intention and i'm wrapping it up i want a- just a three-point rating scale and where should this hang the loo is this something to look at the lab is this something to learn from or the Louvre, British for that. Just, you know, a, yeah, there's the a poop loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Well, on doing
1: some research, I realized it was actually hung in the Louvre before it was moved to the Musée d'Orsay, where it is now. So, I gotta say the Louvre, honestly.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to disagree with that. Um, I mean, it literally hung in the Louvre. <laughs> so who am I to who am I to second guess that? Yeah, um, not gonna yeah. It it is a beautiful piece. There's a lot to learn from. It's it's something that we can look at and get an insight into what somebody's day-to-day life was like. I mean, in art in art education, we always talk about what does the art tell us about the society and the the people that produced it and what was going on historically and all of that. And this one sort of just ticks all the boxes for me. I, I can talk a lot about, you know, gender roles and family life and, you know, what the experience was on the professional and personal level. And also at the end of the day, it's just, it's a beautiful piece. There's, you know, Little things like the mirroring of like the the balance of like the white veil over the cradle and then the white behind her as well. So she's just like this small piece peeking out into that field of white. Um, in some ways, it's overwhelming her and eclipsing her. And, and I think there's probably some symbolism and stuff you could unpack from that. But totally. I, I think... I think in this case, more so just like she, she hit everything just right.
1: Yeah. From, from an art history lens, I completely agree with you. It has the history aspect, but it's also just a beautiful work to look at. And yeah, I think the use of kind of these juxtaposing light and dark contrasts, it really just is a great piece.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you once again. I really appreciate your taking the time to teach me new insights about an artist that now I'm just a little bit ashamed that I didn't already know quite a bit about. Uh, Thank you once again, Lucy Fiorito.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me